please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Again, we are looking at chapter 5. Again, for the 1 Corinthians, chapter 5 is new this morning. And we will read all of chapter 5, and we'll read the first eight verses of 6. Um, and this will seem like a lot of reading, and it is, but there's a lot there. But I think it ties together, you'll see that this morning. And it's interesting, um, we do something here at Grace called expository preaching which means I work through a letter of the Bible or a portion of the Bible, and that means the Bible tells us what we're going to learn this week. Um, the, the only slight distinction from that is every summer we choose series. Like, so Shane and I are in the summertime going, what are you going to teach at RUF and what are you going to do at church? And So this summer I thought, after praying and discussing with folks, you know, it's time for a Pauline epistle. Pauline is Paul. It's like a, anyway, ownership. And so, 1 Corinthians. And oh, by the way, we live in a really awkward culture right now. And uh, this would be a good letter to kind of dive in and maybe check out our culture along with this crazy city uh, from 2,000 years ago. And maybe never more than now, this, this just feels ripe. And so I feel like I'm about to preach a sermon with fear and trepidation. So let me remind you of something. We are all Christians. And we are all, here's what the... Here's my job as the preacher. Here's my analogy this morning. Um, there's a cave and there's a book in the far end, and it's the Bible. And I crawled in just about one step ahead of you this morning with a, with a lamp on. And I got there and I saw that book and I started reading. And you're all coming around me and we're going to read this together. I just happened to have read it like last week a whole bunch. That's all. So we're all on the same ground here. And uh, my prayer is that it's not my words that are coming across, but that the Holy Spirit would use this text this morning in a powerful way, that we would see how the gospel unlocks our, our passion for right judgment. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at. With that being said, let us look at our passage, um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified, sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I will warn you, chapter 6, you'll think, why are we doing these first eight verses? But Paul does them, and then he picks up the passage in verse 9 with the consistent uh, theme. And you'll see why, I think, as we go on, why they're being read this morning. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the bro- between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank You for the Scripture. Holy Spirit, we praise You that You've delivered it to us. In Jesus, we praise You that You've called us to be Your sons, Your brother, Your sisters, Lord, Your people. We pray that we would see this Scripture freshly as saints. Help us understand the meaning. In Your name we pray. Amen. You know, I don't know that there's ever been a time in history where people say, this is pretty even keel. So I get that, right? Every time in history, by definition, is like the worst. Because it's like the farthest forward. But somehow, that being said, everybody's acting like 2016 is the weirdest year ever with the elections and and just a lot of things happening in our world. Um, But it's also in the church. I don't know if it's social media, but there... I think there's this sense in which a lot of us, if we're honest, would have to say this. What is our role? What is, it our, what is our role as Christians? How are we to be interacting inside the church? How is the church to be interacting with the world? What is our role? Um, listen to these words by Francis Schaeffer. He says, or he used to say, our relationships with others is relatively easy to show either the holiness of God or the love of God. It is quite easy to be either coldly uncompromising against sin or warmly tolerant of it. But what is difficult and in fact impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit is to show both God's holiness and love at the same time. When the two are together, we are neither harsh nor bland. So what Schaefer is saying is God has both holiness and love. And our role in the church is to be able to hold both of those in, in unison. And I think one of the greatest ways we do that, according to this passage, is through right judging. Now that sounds really strange, because most of us think of judging as nothing but negative. You're so judgmental. You know, quit passing judgment. Church, quit telling me what to do. And, and, and the problem is, I think, we've done it so badly, and we often do it so wrongly, that those are great criticisms. But I hope from this passage we'll see that in Christ, when we are resting in Him, when He is our Passover Lamb, we will judge well. 
we can bring together in our judgment both the love of God and the holiness of God in such a way that it actually creates flourishing in the church and in the world around. So that's the goal. It's a big lofty goal for a sermon. Uh, to make it lighthearted, I chose the three little pit, or no, Goldilocks as my outline metaphor. You know, it's not too hot, it's not too... So judging too little, judging too much, and judging just right. That's the outline. So, now you can laugh. That's the only laugh we're going to get. So judging too little. What's happening in this passage? Um, if I were to just quiz everybody, you know, the whole microphone at the end of the sermon, what was the passage about? And I stopped talking now and you all went out the door. Everyone would get stuck on this awful sin, right? I mean, this horrible sin that we're going to about to talk about for two seconds. Uh, but that's not Paul's frustration. Uh, in fact, if you look uh, the way it's translated in the ESV, verse 1 ends by saying, uh, for a man has his father's wife, period. And verse 2, and you are arrogant, exclamation mark. Ought you not rather to mourn, question mark. Okay. Paul's really, really upset about the way this sin has been ignored. That's the biggest issue for him. So what is the sin? Well, it's pretty straightforward. There's a man, and he has his father's wife. I think the, the obvious question is, is it his mom? And the answer is no. Whew. So it's not like that. It's bad. But at least it's not his mom. Um, whew. Why do we say that? In Leviticus 18.7 and 8, there are two laws back to back about not taking a parent. One is, do not take your mother. And the next one is, do not take your father's wife. And so, clearly, the language Paul is using is, re- is referring back to Leviticus 18.8, saying he's probably either married or living with his stepmom. Now, Again, we all have to agree it's a little better than the other option. But it's still horrible. In fact, Paul shames them. Um, The church, when it was starting to take off, was often ridiculed for being moral. I mean, I think the the world around the church would often say they're not, you know, everybody's trying to live these lives that are like restraining and holding back, right? That was sort of the reputation Christians had. Not in Corinth. I mean, Paul's like, even the pagans are like, tone it down. Uh, David Spade used to have, David Spade, the comedian on SNL, he used to do the Hollywood Minute. And this is the only one I remember. Uh, he would just interact with Hollywood stuff. And the, you remember Marilyn Manson? Anyone? This like the, the whole idea behind Marilyn Manson was be as scary as you can be and go make money. And uh, so there's this moment where David Spade goes, the, the photo of Marilyn Manson pops up looking scary. And David Spade says, uh, Marilyn, Satan called, and he wants you to tone it down just a little. You're giving him nightmares. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. It's like the pagans are kind of going, maybe you guys should chill just a little bit because there's this report, the report that this guy has moved in or has his stepmom there together. And the reason this is so significant is it's being tolerated. It's being allowed. Paul's so upset because it's not that somebody sinned, it's that it's completely okay with everybody. Um, And that's really dark. And that's the warning to us right now as the church is that we're not just tolerating gross sin. That's the warning. I I don't remember the reason, but not long ago, um, I saw a photo of a lynching on on the Internet. And you see these from time to time. Of course, thankfully, they're hopefully a long time ago and a long forgotten time. But 
it's what's so crazy about these awful, disgusting images is not just the shock of murder without justice, but you often have like white people smiling at the camera as if to say, we're proud of what's going on here. That is so disgusting. And the question for us then is, are we having too little judgment? Are we judging the church? Are we judging ourselves? That's the question of this passage. Are we just simply allowing sin to have its way? Are we ignoring problems? What was actually possibly happening, we don't know specifically why it was being tolerated, but it's very probable, because this was what was often happening in Corinth, was that this man was probably financially well-to-do. Maybe even one of the house churches met at his home. And so there's a sense in which we don't want to hurt feelings. We don't want to cut that off. And because it's happening behind closed doors, and you know who are we to judge? So there's a sense in which the church can easily allow things that just sort of don't seem really harmful to us. And yet, for Paul, he's their wake-up call. Um, so, too little judgment. We're going to come back to the, the right judgment and what the church should do. But initially, I just hope we understand we don't judge ourselves enough. You know, I think, and, and it sounds bad, but I'm talking about Christians looking at our own conduct and the conduct of our culture. See, for the Corinthians to say that was sin would probably implicate them in, to some degree as well. Well, I've been going to his church for six months, or, you know, I, I, however it would tie them together. What happens is we, when sin has a face, one of our temptations is to start to go, maybe it's not sin anymore. Right? Okay. Sin too little. How about sin too much, or uh, judgment too little, sorry. How about judgment too much, right? This one was too little. Now Paul's saying there is such a thing as too much judgment. We would call it judgmentalism. Um, there's only really a few verses that highlight this, but it's very, very important for our own context. Verse 10 of chapter 5, and verse 9 and 10. Paul has apparently written them a letter before and has told them to not associate with sexually immoral people, and they misunderstood what he meant. So look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. This is a common misconception of, of Christianity. The Christian church has often tried to ma- maintain its purity by stepping outside of the world. There's a great book called, uh, the, it's called Chameleon Christianity by Dick Kyes. And I highly recommend it. And he's, he is the um, director of a Labrie in Boston, worked with Schaefer. Um, and of course, Labrie and Schaefer, their passion was bringing Christianity to culture and showing how the church really is relevant to the surrounding culture while maintaining our distinctives, right? While not blending in. And so a chameleon obviously blends into its surrounding. That's one danger, right? Um, whereas the other option, he didn't choose this as the, as the uh, title, but the other possibility is the musk ox, right? The musk ox, that would have been a bad title. Chameleon Christianity or the musk ox? That doesn't work. Let's just get rid of that and call it chameleon. But the musk ox, they surround their young in such ways to protect them, uh, which is a good thing in the animal world, but sometimes the church does that to a fault. We think if we can isolate our own from the dangers out there, we will protect and and we will keep the problems away. 
And of course, there is a lot of wisdom and elements of that, but what you find often is the church thinks, mis- misunderstands that you're supposed to withdraw from culture completely. Uh, so here's a quote that he talks about. Well, I thought I have it. There we go. He says, sociologists tell us that dissonant groups within a larger society react to reduce the potential for friction in two predictable ways. One, compromise their distinctive beliefs and way of life, and so reduce their conflict. That's chameleon Christianity, right? That's one option. The other is to keep their dissonance and tribalize, retreating within their own group and thus losing contact with society. Intriguingly, and he's referring now uh, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, intriguingly, this is exactly what Jesus was pointing to when he said, be light and salt. The question is, are we able to judge the church rightly without being judgmental to the world? That's the trick, isn't it? That's our challenge. I should just stop here, and then everyone comes up and gives their methodology of how do we do that? Let me see if we come up with something really good by the end of the sermon. Uh, I love creating the tension, but then I also fear I've got to have an answer. I've got to have something. Well, so Paul is telling us this is a tendency, right? There's this tendency to either be all in or all out. The other way, by the way, this passage and why we brought in chapter 6 shows that we have too much uh, judgmentalism is one way is shutting the world out. We just talked about, right, in verse 9 and 10. But in in chapter 6, he talks about something that's kind of strange. I'm going to paraphrase these verses 1 through 8. Essentially what's happening is the moment there's a problem between two brothers or brother and sister in the church, they run to the human court, right? And so that's another type of too much judgment. That's almost, um, and the first is wanting the world to stay out, which is judgmental toward the world. But the other one is I want all the way the world thinks to influence what we're doing. I want the world to cast the judgment here. In other words, I don't trust the church, so we're going to go out to the court because I want to get what's coming to me. I have a beef. Someone's taken over my property line. Someone didn't give me what I was owed. Something happened civilly or economically, and we're going to go to the judgment courts. And that's why I included this passage, is all of these are dealing with judgment, right? And either the world is nasty, or we want all of their opinions. And I think, by the way, and I won't go into this too far, um, that's a little bit, I wonder, if uh, an application to that idea of wanting the, the world's judgment in civil matters is what's going on even in like the election. When we really want the world to sort of affirm our views, right? Uh, and so for half the people, it's, it's one candidate. For half, it's another candidate. But part of our frustration is that we're not resting on Scripture, resting on Christ, resting in the church. We're looking outside of the world to, build, to verify our own political views, our own sensibilities. Um, and that's another form of judgmental. We want the world's judgment in here, right? We're afraid of what the world thinks of us. We want to, um, and so we have all this wrong type of judgment. Um, and Paul says some crazy things <laughs> that I don't know how to explain uh, in chapter 6. Listen to this. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now just a second ago, Ryan, he said, you don't judge the world. What's going on? Well, what he's saying is, in the first part, in chapter 5, we're not to go exclude or disenfranchise people or separate ourselves from people in the world. 
That's a type of, that's judgmental, right? It's one thing to say, that is a sin. It's another thing to say, therefore, I'm never going to spend time with that person. It's, it's important to understand there are times where you need to watch yourself. If you struggle with a particular sin, maybe you don't go hang out where that sin is constantly happening. That's not judgmental. All those friends will tell you it is. When I was in high school, I drank in high school. When I started walking with Jesus, I, I realized I went, to, I went to my first field party sober. And I go to this field party, and I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. You stand here in a field doing nothing. And you're certainly not having good conversations. Unless you're drinking, this is completely useless. I was getting mosquito bites and poison ivy. Uh, so I quit going. Um, because you realize if I'm here, I might as well just start drinking again. So there is that. Don't get, you, know, you can exclude yourself from the world there. But what we tend to want to do is we look at the world and want to cast judgment and we don't want it to come in. right? And yet we have this strange longing for the world's approval. And Paul is saying in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 2, the saints are going to judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? What he is doing is he's strengthening our view of what the church is. And this is why I want to bring this to bear to home a little bit. Um, the problem with our judgment is we're not doing it with the right view of the church's role, the right love of the church, the right unitedness to the church. Paul cannot believe that brothers are taking brothers to court. I mean, it just shocks him. And he's saying, you think that that judge over there will have any care? Any care of God or wisdom or anything about you that the church itself can't have? And so what it leaves us with is we have to learn okay, how to judge well. So this has been all over the place. I get it. Uh, don't judge me. But point three then is just right. What does just right of judgment look like? If the church is supposed to judge our own people, not be judgmental of the world, but yet also not clamor for the world's attention, what what does judging look like? What does judge, proper judgment look like? And it stands on the authority of Scripture, right? So Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 5, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. What? You're, Paul, you're somewhere else, and you're telling me your spirit is like here in Corinth? Like, what is going on? Weird, isn't it? Think of the hologram in Star Wars, right? Um, the emperor wasn't really in that room or whoever, whatever thing. But they treated, they were hearing the words and they're seeing the image, and it was as good as if they were there. That is what Paul is saying. He is saying, let me explain, everybody. We are connected. I am an apostle called by God. That's how he starts the letter. In chapter 4, we didn't cover it last week in the reading, but he says, I, You have a lot of brothers in Christ, or a lot of, um, excuse me, guides in Christ, but how many fathers do you have? He's like, I'm your father. Luke. See, there's the Star Wars. I'm your father. He's saying, I love you. I'm your father. And as you receive this letter from me, it's as if I'm there. Treat it as if I'm standing there right then. So the question is, do we take Scripture that seriously? Is this our authority? 
I think what makes us nervous is the second we say yes, we're afraid that someone's going to teach us something we don't believe. Right? What is your, the fear of Scripture? But before you even get to the possible applications, we have to affirm that, the Father, that God the Father in His infinite wisdom gave us His Word, and He's given us His Holy Spirit to understand His Word, and you are responsible for your understanding of Scripture. So I can come up here and do my best, but if I'm wrong, that's sort of on you. I'll be punished. But your job is to know Scripture. Your job is to bring the problems of your life to the Word and also to the church. So we get together, and we say, let's talk about this. One of the things that's the most bothersome to me, and I don't know how to fix it, I really don't, because even Shane and I disagree on politics a little bit, and that's, I'm not, is how do, here's what Christians do. I don't want to go into politics. Where else are you going to talk about politics? And we did. We had a great conversation, actually. It was good, it was great, we ended, because we didn't go too long on it. Um, <laughs> What you have to do is a whole lot of, that's a good point, brother. <laughs> but why can't the church talk about politics? Right? The two things you're not allowed to talk about are religion and politics. Well, we do religion, we might as well talk about politics. Now, that doesn't mean I should get up here and talk about politics. That's not my point. My point is that we should have enough trust in Scripture and in Jesus and in one another that we can actually have hard conversations and go, what does this look like? What does this particular cultural movement look like as it's feeding back into our church? Have we, has the church got something wrong? Or have we need, do we need to judge something new? We, we need to have these conversations. Okay? The authority of Scripture allows that. Um, there's also this other thing about um, judging that's in this passage that's really difficult. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh. That's harsh. How many of you enjoyed reading that? That's really talking about excommunication. Um, one of the things in our new members class we go over, every new members class is church discipline. And I'm always like, I'm afraid one and somebody's going to go, what? What does that even mean? You know, the three marks of the church. If someone asked you, well, historically, what are the three marks of the church? Do you know, do you know the answer? What makes a church a church, right? What are the three marks? One, apostolic teaching. It's a historic, right? Another one, the sacraments. Okay, we take the Lord's Supper, we practice baptism. What's the third? Church discipline. And every one of us, our jaw drops, and we go, oh no. Ryan and his cronies are going to come after me when they find out I'm a sinner. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Look at what he says. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul wants nothing more than this man who's engaged in this horrific sin to be saved. And it's fascinating. This doesn't happen a whole lot in Scripture, but you get the, you get the back after story. You get the um, next round in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 2, Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it to not, not just to me, but in some measure... Let me say it again. Now if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 
And anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And he goes on to say, so Paul is saying, this man's repentant. He's back. Hallelujah. The church's discipline saved him. Okay? I feel like this has all just been a preparatory note to the rest of the sermon, but unfortunately there's only a few minutes left. Um, But here's the point. What's the power source? How then is this judgment to happen? What's the point? There's a place in verse um, 5 and 6, I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Here's the problem. I'm going to try to bring it home here. We don't like judging because we have a really, really bad understanding of sin. Even if theologically our view of sin has become more and more in line with Scripture, often our heart taints it. And we forget how sinful we really are. We forget some of the root causes of our sin. Um, Jonathan Edwards, at the time of of the um, Great Awakening, wrote, Although almost all human beings give the appearance at times of being confused seekers for truth with a naive respect for God, the reality is that unless they are moved by the Spirit, they have a natural distaste for the real God an uncontrollable desire to break His laws, and a constant tendency to sit in judgment on Him when they notice Him at all. So, I don't know if you know the setting, but in the Great Awakening, you don't have like this huge group of atheists who've never gone to church coming to Christ. It's people like you and I in the church where revivals take place. Some of us, if we're honest, are nominal Christians. We are by name only. I hope that's not true of you. I have nobody in mind. I certainly hope it's not true of me. I don't believe it is. But nonetheless, it's a condition in the church that a lot of people pretend. And then the gospel comes alive. And revival can happen. Right? And not only those in the church, but those outside of the church, they're watching. And when the church gets the gospel and understands the love of God, it flows out. And people actually want to join the church. They want to come in for healing, not judgment. Or if they are judged, it's out of pure love. Like, come, join a fellow sinner. Let's heal together. So what is your view of sin? I think most of us, if we really think about sin, it's these isolated, one-off things. Thoughts. We, we really are proud of ourselves. Okay, thought, order, deed. Yes. So that's pretty robust. The world doesn't consider that all sin. But we just get stuck on these isolated actions. We forget how pervasive it is. Here's another quote. by uh, It's a first quote by Loveless, but a quote on sin. It's my favorite quote on sin. So if you're ready to tune me out, you're exhausted, you want to get out of here, muster everything in your being to hear this one quote. The structure of sin in the human personality is something far more complicated than the isolated acts and thoughts of deliberate disobedience, commonly designated by the word. Okay, paraphrase. It's not just these isolated acts. I've already mentioned that. It's more. He says, sin cannot be limited to the isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It's not just lying once or a pattern of lying. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex. Here's the part to pay attention to. It's an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. 
sin, when you sin, it's springing from the part of you that's alienated from God, the flesh. There is no small sin. And our sin is very disruptive to our being. And left unchecked, it will spread. And that's what Paul says. Now's the point to look at this one metaphor that we've ignored this entire sermon. Verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It spreads like a virus. Not only in my own heart. When I sin, and I don't go to the Lord, I'm prone to sin again. I'm basically saying that was okay. That wasn't as bad as it could have been. And it gets worse and worse. And more than the isolated acts becoming more numerous, the organic network of of sins is just growing stronger and stronger without repentance. But look at what Paul says. I think the, the beam of heaven on this passage is verse um, 7 when he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What? We're talking about passing judgment. We're talking about the world. What does this have to do with anything? You and I are walking like the Exodus, the, the, the um, Israelites in the Exodus. We are like them in just walking in death. That's what this world is doing. And the Passover lamb, remember in the Exodus, um, they were instructed to take the lamb, sacrifice it, and spread its blood on the doorpost. And then eat it. Why? Because they were going to die if they didn't. Their firstborn would die. It was a picture of what was to come. Are we playing at Christianity? Are we playing with this world? Are we just going along like the Corinthians, sort of allowing sin to kind of come into the church, looking at the world and being judgmental? Are we doing these kind of things? Or are we, are we personally running to Christ, our Passover lamb? And look at verse 8. Let us celebrate the festival. Is Jesus good news? Is there a festival for you? Is the idea that when we take this Lord's Supper, What we are saying is that Christ died for you. You are eating of His body and taking in His blood. I know it's not literal. Don't think I'm crazy. But but His Holy Spirit is applying all the benefits of heaven to you. That's who you are. In chapter 6, he's like, you're saints. Do you not realize who you are? And we're scared of the world. We're scared of hurting each other's feelings. And more than anything, we're scared of the fact that we're sinners. And we don't know how to repent. I think we're afraid to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I sinned again. Is that what you do? Is that the heart of your Christianity? That that daily taking your sin before the Lord. Why would you eat of the Passover lamb if you don't sin? I would love someone to tell me that. Why do you engage in the Lord's Supper if it's not because you think you're a sinner? We need Jesus. We need Jesus to make us holy. We need Jesus to heal us. Just like this man. There is nothing good about letting your child get close to the freeway. Is there? Would any? Well, I don't want to be mean. Right? I don't want to be a rude parent. I don't want to be overbearing. We would rescue that child. Jesus is rescuing you through His church. Is grace, Presbyterian Church, or wherever you may attend now or in the future, is it a place where you can be known, where you can be rescued, where Jesus is good news, where you can be honest, where you can lovingly 
interact with each other, about life, about all the social dilemmas we're facing together without hating each other, without getting mad at each other, without saying, I'm cutting them off, they're a Democrat or they're a Republican, or they think that this is okay, or that's... Is this a place where we can bring the Scripture to bear that Christ is our common bond? I hope so. I hope that this... I hope... I mean, I hope the Holy Spirit will make us long for His Word more than ever. Let's pray. Jesus, judging is so hard because we know we can't do it without You. In fact, it's only by Your Word that we can cast a judgment. And Lord, the first place we need to judge is our own hearts. Let us be people who see the plank as far greater than the speck. Let us be people who are so broken by our tendency to run from You that if we ever come across a fellow sinner, we do it with open arms. With a desire to shepherd. With a desire to teach and love and care and pray. And Father, when we come across those outside of the church, teach us not to be judgmental. Lord, certainly we, we know what sin is and certainly we avoid horrible situations that would tempt us, but teach us to love outsiders. To welcome them into the church that they might hear the Gospel. Father, we need You for this task. We are becoming more illiterate. Our attention spans are becoming worse than ever. And the thought of reading Your Bible for more than four minutes makes many of us unsure of what to do. We need You. We need wisdom. We need patience. But Father, if somehow we can recover the understanding that Jesus, You've died for us. You're the festival. You're the unleavened bread. You're our hope. You're our new identity. Maybe with that excitement we can get together in groups and read the Bible and chew on it and talk and be honest with our struggles and grow for your glory. Amen.